always have this little dance of, <laughs> I'm glad Mike's alive. Uh, he's here in Perky. <laughs> we always have this little dance of electronic shuffle up here that uh, um, uh, it's always, <laughs> to me, kind of interesting and not really what I want to talk about, but I, I think about these things as um, I'm usually the one kind of like, oh, what has to come off, what has to go on, and what has to be turned on, what has to be turned off. It's kind of a pain, to be honest with you, but we do what we have to do. I'm glad you guys are having a great day. How could you not have a great day with weather like what we're having, right? We finally get to like uh, 90 degrees and, uh, and a great day, great day to be out on the water uh, yesterday, today. And, uh, but it's more so than any of that, uh, it's a great day to worship the Lord. Amen? Amen. And uh, we're excited that, uh, that you're here. Welcome if it's maybe your first or second time of being here. Uh, we're grateful that you joined us, and uh, we pray that, uh, that uh, you would feel welcomed here. Um, of course, we've been praying for David Maldonado. Uh, and and I, my understanding is, I, I read all of these texts and emails, but he's doing better, correct? Slowly. It's hard to explain. Yeah, yeah, to be expected. So, um, so for, for those of you that don't know uh, Molly, this is Molly Maldonado, and she usually has like a, a lineup of um, her whole team of kids, I'll put it that way, and uh, her husband has, has had some uh, health struggles, definitely, and has been down at Spokane for a couple of weeks, actually, hasn't it been? Yeah. He, but he's home now. Yeah, that's what I thought I heard. And so we're going to be praying for David. And uh, if you want to know more, or you want to pray more specifically, you can catch her after church, and she can explain it way better than I can. Um, but uh, he's definitely been on our hearts and, and in our prayers. Um, you know, before I get started today, back into our steer- series that we've been walking through on what God uses to make us stronger in our faith, I want to bring some clarity to a couple of things that uh, have been brought to me, been brought to the leadership. I think it's good to do this from time to time. Uh, there, there's kind of been a few questions um, in regard to the things that are going on in our society uh, and how that intersects with church and with faith. Uh, one of those questions is, why did we choose to reopen and have in-person services, in-church services when we did with what's going on? Um, there's kind of two reasons for that. Um, I want to put this out there, is one, is that we can't fulfill the ministry that Jesus has called to as a church electronically. We can't fulfill that electronically forever. That's impossible. We can do it in small groups, and there's been a lot of discussion and a lot of great discussion. I think the Lord's really stirring something in this fellowship when it comes to home, home groups and, and small groups, that whole agenda. I think that's really a positive thing, and, and I would encourage all of us to um, really embrace small groups as they start to flourish up here uh, in the next few months. And so stay tuned for that piece. But we can't do what God's called us to do when we don't come together. It's impossible. Um, you can't do communion. You can't minister to people the way that God intends them to be ministered to. Um, there's a dynamic that happens in the gathering. In fact, one of the one of the sermons I've kind of had on my, in my head and in my heart is uh, fellowship, assembly required, you know, that, that we have to get together. We have to get together. 
It's, it's not optional if you're a Christ follower. So we can't fulfill that ministry without doing that. We can't do it electronically. And if you're watching online uh, this morning or have been on a consistent basis, actually, I would invite you to come and show up at 10 in the morning uh, if you're comfortable to do so. Um, that we, th- there's a dynamic to having you that are watching online here with the rest of us uh, that can't be replicated any other way. Um, the second and probably the more controversial piece of why we reopened when we did um, is based on the premise of why we shut down, why we closed our church services. And why we closed down the in-church services at Addy, well, the premise was, if we'll think back to March and April, which seems like an eternity ago, the premise was is that by by flattening the, the curve of this pandemic, of this virus, we will not overwhelm our hospitals and our medical uh, community here in Stevens County. I want to apply it to us here because other areas of the country are different. Other areas have, uh, you know, there's 27,000 people per square mile in New York City. Um, there's only 44,000 people in all of Stevens County. So it's a big difference when we start talking about populations and density. But the premise by which we shut down, I'm talking about any other church, I think a lot of churches are the same boat, but I'll talk about our church. The premise that we shut down was so that, so that we could give this thing an opportunity to, to slow down and to settle down, and that when that curve was flattened, by that premise, we would enter back in. When we decided to open back up, it was because the goal, the goals, the, the goalposts of this whole thing keep shifting. It wasn't about flattening the curve when we reopened. It was then about no cases in Stevens County, zero new cases for two or three weeks at a stretch. That's an impossibility. And so the goal of, of, of the authorities keeps shifting, and they're expecting everybody else to shift with them, including people of faith, and in some states, like California, especially people of faith, they want to really start restricting what we do, or what, as Christians, what we do, as believers, what we do. So in California, they say, hey, no singing. That's an impossibility to worship God. I'm not saying that you, we can't worship Him in our mind, but it's not the same. We're called, the Bible's full of examples, cover to cover, of worshiping in song before the Lord. That's part of who we're called to be. It's part of what we're called to do and how we're called to interact with one another. You can't do that if we're just sitting at home staring at the computer. You can't do that if we're, if we're isolated in the sense that uh, we, we don't gather. At some point, we have to draw a line in the sand and say enough is enough. We're going to do what God says to do. We're going to respect the authority, and we do respect the authority. That's why we have common sense protocols and even some of those have changed a little bit of we've learned and, and grown in our knowledge. Uh, uh, this thing has been like this for church leadership. If you guys don't know that, I mean, it's been up and down and all over, and it's hard to know where the good advice is and, and wisdom is coming from. Um, so we made the decision, just one of a few churches, actually one of two or three churches in Stevens County to open when we did, uh, of course, putting some common sense health protocols in play, uh, and, and primarily this, because I believe, and I think that the, all of the board, elders and deacons, would uh, totally agree with this statement, 
is that what's missing in our culture, what's missing in our society, and what's definitely missing coming from the authorities is the idea that people have to take personal responsibility for themselves. And that and that, those mandates come from, from the Lord. They come for, for believers. They come from the Bible. That we should consider others' needs ahead of ourselves and all that type of stuff. And rather, those responsibilities are, are being pushed uh, in a sense. They're being pushed uh, downstream. Um, and, and the thing is, and the reality is, and we can all say this together, the science is all over the map. The science for this whole thing is all over the board. Uh, some experts are saying this, some are saying that, some are trying to twist and turn, you know, there's definitely an agenda, statistically, state to state, in and out, uh, there's really no difference, the percentages are just minuscule, the difference between, say, South Dakota and, and Washington, now Washington had a, has definitely a hotspot because we have more population on the other side, so we have to factor that in, but South Dakota shut down nothing, and they require nothing, and statistically, they're no different than, than any other place. So, um, as Christ followers, we have to just, it was time to step up and do what we needed to do. And so we did that, and uh, we counted the cost. We counted the cost. The very first week, I said, well, if somebody wants to come and anybody gets arrested, it'll be me, and Josh will pay my bail. That's what I, that's what I told Les. <laughs> and Josh is like, right on, I'm with you. Uh, of course, he can sign the checks from the church, so, um, <laughs> but uh, nobody's been here, nobody, you know, and, um, and here, here's the other thing I want to say, so uh, in saying the personal responsibility piece, so it's on you, and it's on me to treat and to, to behave and to, to, to be as cautious, cautious as, as we feel we should be, uh, and of course, all of that gets filtered through what the word says of how we interact. And if, if wearing a mask, there's some that wear a mask, there's some that don't wear a mask. I can't preach with a mask on. I'll tell you when I do wear a mask is if I'm in the grain bin shoveling grain. Because when I get out of the grain bin from shoveling grain, my mask is black. So I wear a mask. Uh, if I have to go to the hospital and, and, and visit, you know, uh, uh, an elderly relative that doesn't have much time to live... Uh, then I'm going to put a mask on. I'm fine with that. I, I'm not like, no at any cost. There's an appropriateness, and there's definitely uh, points of conviction for all of us. And we need to respect that across the board, both directions. Uh, because, like I said two weeks ago, a lot of this becomes this massive distraction for what God has really called us to. And that's what I don't want to happen. I don't want all of this to be a massive distraction for what God wants to happen in this fellowship and, and, and how God wants us to relate with one another and to encourage people that are not believers to, uh, to consider Christ. That's our, that's our mandate. That's our mission. Uh, don't let social controversy slide into the church and be divisive. Rather, uh, we should be able to see where God is using even the, the struggles in our culture, uh, even in this pandemic, to grow us in our faith. That's my encouragement. Let's see where God can take this thing, uh, despite how we may personally feel or, or whatnot, how we can reach out, how it opens windows 
Uh, and that circles back around to the idea of small groups. I've heard a lot of testimony and a lot of thoughts and ideas lately about small groups. And uh, so just stay tuned. It's coming. We want it to come in, in a big way. Not for the sake of making Addy look huge. For the sake of, and you can't accomplish this morning right now in a church service. You cannot accomplish the dynamic that needs to be accomplished that can be accomplished and, and does uh, and is accomplished when you guys meet in small groups. For years and years, I've believed we have to get people out of rows and into small circles, meeting in homes. And I know there's small groups that go on, uh, that are currently going on. We need more of that. We need more people to rise up. And some people have said, hey, uh, I'm burdened to help, to help lead in a small group, uh, host it if possible. So... Um, we need to continue to, to encourage that because that's the growth zone, so to speak, for a church. It's not so much here. And, and I think that's part of why I've, why I've been burdened to preach through the things that God uses to grow us because what, I really, what I'm really thinking is, is today, Sundays is about proclamation and encouragement, and there should be some challenge in that. There should be some conviction in that for sure, but there's not the interaction you know, there's, there's, there's not this deal, you know, where we can sit in small groups. And if it's, I'm at, up at the Kiefer's and we've, homes, we've home grouped with you guys, haven't we? And it was awesome, wasn't it? And Mary Weeby brought food all the time. And, and she still does. And, and so what I want to know is, why did I quit home grouping with you guys when I could be m- eating Mary Weeby's cooking? But you can accomplish this back and forth dialogue and encourage one another uh, here, that's, that's not what this day is about necessarily. Now, the good part is, is that happens after the service. Because I see people over here praying, I see people over here talking, I see people over here encouraging, and that needs to continue on, for sure. But it's not, you, you can't have the interaction in this big of a group. Um, and so, <coughs> what do I want to say? The arena of greatest growth happens uh, in those small groups. Um, we've been working through this series. Actually, we're quite a few weeks into this series as the Lord's leadness and the things that grow us in our faith. It was amazing as I was preparing for this service, I took the opportunity to kind of look back through my notes and the files on my computer, the different sermon titles, titles of adversity, different things that we God uses to make us stronger. He uses adversity. Excuse me. He uses the choices that we make. Choices are a, a huge, a huge thing in the life of a believer. Uh, it's a reflection of, of where you are, where you think you want to go. Uh, it's a bit of a reflection of, of where you've been. Uh, the, all those things influence our choices. We looked at topics of hope and suffering, unity, freedom. How God uses freedom in the life of a believer frees us from uh, the power and the penalty and the presence of sin. How God uses encouragement to strengthen us. How God uses love to encourage us. And two weeks ago we talked about uh, the idea of turn, seek, and find. Out of 1 Chronicles 15. No, I'm wrong about that. 2 Chronicles 15. How King Asa uh, was prophesied to 
and heard what God's plan was to bring peace to their nation, to bring peace to Judah. And, and Asa grabbed onto that word of the Lord wholeheartedly to the point that uh, he even made the hard choice to kick out his own mother, the queen mother, out of the, uh, out of the castle, so to speak, because of the idolatry that she was in. Asa was definitely an idolatry breaker. That's the encouragement for us out of two weeks ago. Is, is that uh, our, And the question I had on my mind, and I think I communicated, is are we as concerned about the idols in our own lives as we are what's going on in our culture? Like, the, are, are we willing to deal with our own stuff, our own sin? Am I, Mark Hopkins, willing to take an honest look at my own life or am I way more keyed into what's going on in our culture, what's going on online, what's going on, what the hot topics, the buzz uh, is around me? And not, it's not to say that we don't engage in our culture, uh, but oftentimes being whipped up about the wrong things is a distraction for really dealing with the things, things in our heart that God wants to deal with. Last week we talked out of Hebrews 5, uh, the... Uh, where there should be a transition that takes place in the life of a Christian. And, and Paul, I believe it was Paul that wrote Hebrews, said that uh, that transition is kind of like a baby growing from milk to meat. Uh, that's the phrase that, that's used, that's growing from that milk to meat, and uh, from being taught to being teachers. He says, by now, uh, many of you should be teaching, but you're not because you're dull of hearing. So the issue really is a, the, real, the issue really is a, is a hearing issue. It's a loss of spiritual hearing that has caused this dullness that's got you off track of where you should be, but here's where you really are. Rather, he says, in Corinthians, he says, really, you're uh, babes in Christ. Uh, and he treats them as babes. He treats the believers in Corinth as babes in Christ, still handing them the milk. Now, I hope I communicated really well that that's not necessarily a bad thing. So a lot of times there's this contrast and in, in when, we, when we hear about these concepts, we hear about these ideas in Christianity, that milk or meat, oh my goodness, it's the milk, oh milk, milk. Milk's not a bad place to be if you're a new believer. That's the right place to be. That's the right place to be. But it's not the only place to be. So there should be this growing and transition in our spiritual walk of going from milk to meat, the solid, uh, solid meat of the word. A few questions have come up since Sunday. How does this transition happen? How do we know when we're on the right track? Uh, or this one, what are the evidences that we're growing in the right way? What are the evidences that we're growing in the right way? I want to insert for a couple weeks here uh, two words Two words that should change our lives completely. Two words that are often misunderstood or they're categorized in a way that is not a reflection of the way that God sees it. Two words that um, uh, we think of in, in, in just a few select areas of our faith but it doesn't overlay all of our life. 
those words are this, the gospel. The gospel. So for the next couple of weeks, we're going to take this deeper look into the gospel as God's atmosphere of growth. That's really what the gospel is. It should, it should overarch all of our lives and propel us to grow. That's why it's one of those things, uh, and, and, and intertwined with all these other things that we've talked about, of how God grows us in our faith. But if we don't have the right perspective on the gospel, a lot of times it's going to be delegated to one of three categories that I came up with. Because when I, a lot of people say the gospel, most of us think of, of perhaps one of these or a multitude of these things. Uh, and I like the first one first, maybe because I was kind of in a snarky attitude when I wrote it down. <laughs> But that is, is that the, uh, the gospel is the Christian sales pitch for non-believers, right? That's the sales pitch when we, when we think that we're, that we're ministering to somebody and we're kind of sizing them up and are they ready, are they not ready, are they interested, are they not interested? We're just waiting to hit them with the sales pitch of the gospel, which is not necessarily bad. I'm not, I'm not making fun of that. But if that's all that we think the gospel is, we're missing a ton in our Christian walk. So this idea, number two, I guess would be similar. All of them are kind of similar in a sense. Is number two would be that the gospel is used only for evangelism. And that is the, only the starting blocks. I, I put these words in here only on purpose. That it's only the starting blocks of our faith, but not part of the whole race. You see, a, a, a backed up view, a bigger higher and broader view of the New Testament can be seen as one big project of sharing, accepting, infusing, and applying the gospel into the lives of Christians. You guys get that? I'll reread it. The New Testament can be seen as one huge project, multiple writers, multiple perspectives, over a vast period of time. New Testament can be seen as one big project of sharing, accepting, infusing and, in, and applying the gospel into the lives of Christians. So the gospel is the power then, on the front end, in the starting blocks, it's the power uh, of salvation in Christ. It's the good news about Jesus and the fact that, that He's not going to leave you as you are if you trust in Him. He's not going to leave you to stand before the great white throne judgment. He's paid that penalty. You trust in Him and that part is a, not something we have to stand individually. So that's the salvation piece. Saved us and broke us from the, uh, uh, paved the penalty, uh, paid the penalty uh, for our salvation. Paid the penalty for our sin, providing salvation. That's that power of salvation as the gospel is. The second half of that is, is the power for sanctification. It's a big Christian word that basically means this, that you're changing, that you're in process of being changed. And we should all, if you've been a believer at all for any length of time, even maybe you know a short period of time, you should definitely see, if you look back over the timeline of your life, you should see some waypoints of change in your life. I do. I can look back over my life, and I don't feel like standing here today that I have everything nailed down and, and doing everything perfectly, but I'm not the guy that I was at 19. I guarantee you that. I'm not the guy that I was when I was 19. 
till I've changed. That's that whole process of sanctification. And the gospel is what God uses to do that. Another way of looking at the gospel in, in two aspects of the gospel is who Jesus is. In other words, what he's done for us, the salvation piece. Or, and this is where a lot of people get really interested uh, when, they're, when they're growing, when they're changing, when they're wrestling with deep issues in their lives, is how the gospel works in our lives. How does it make a difference today? That's what we want to know a lot of times. That's why uh, when it comes to proclaiming the word on a Sunday, there needs to be good, solid application. When we're meeting on a Tuesday or a Thursday night in small groups, there needs to be some takeaways, something that I can put into practice, something that I can uh, uh, embrace that God uses to change who I am to be more like Him. That's the change piece. And so how does it work? I love working on equipment and figuring out how it works. And I work with a couple of guys, one in particular, his name is Bill, who is a genius. I mean, he, he has a high school education, kind of, sort of. <laughs> He's a genius at figuring out a piece of equipment. He'll buy a piece of equipment, never ran it before. He'll sit there, he'll look at it. Somebody else will be running the tractor, and he'll go to diagnosing that thing, partly out of necessity, because, uh, hey, uh, farming's tough. There's not an endless supply of cash out there to just uh, dial up a mechanic. The last time I had a mechanic come and work on my baler, he drove from Tri-Cities up here to Addy, worked for about three, four hours and drove home, and the bill was like 1500 bucks. So you can't just, every time there's a hiccup, you can't just get somebody on the phone and say, I, I just don't know what the problem is. No, Bill's the kind of guy that he dives in, he wants to know how it works. What's making it, and why is it not working if it's broken? And we have to have that type of mentality as well in regard to our own faith, in regard to our own families, a realistic look into our marriages, a realistic look into our community, definitely a realistic look into our church. And uh, we have to have that curiosity, how it works and how it makes a difference in our daily lives, and how can we improve it. Not that it's all up to us. What is God saying for improvement in, in some of these areas? So that's why, like with church, we bring up the idea of small groups because we believe wholeheartedly uh, the things that I just shared about small groups. And we're, I, I'll tell you this, I'm desperately searching for what it takes to motivate every single person that comes to this church into a small group. Like, what is that thing? And we're going to talk about motivating factors. What are those motivating factors that encourage people? So is the gospel a starting point of our faith? Absolutely. Is it the engine that powers our daily life? Uh, the answer to that is yes, too. Absolutely. It's the engine that powers our daily life. So here's a good example. One of my favorite verses. Uh, one of the very first verses as a... Uh, 19, 20-year-old that I memorized, uh, short of all of the regulars of John 3.16, the Romans Road, and all that goes with those verses as a new believer. But this is one that particularly stuck with me, and where we'll start this morning on this little uh, crusade into the gospel. And when I say the gospel, the gospel simply just means good news. Uh, so you can have a lot of good news that's about other stuff, 
But when I say the gospel, or when the Bible talks about the gospel, it's simply talking about who? It's talking about Jesus. That's right. Sunday school answer. That was a freebie. Everybody could have got an A on that test, right? It's simply talking about Jesus. All that who Jesus is, all that he taught, all that he is doing in our lives, the work that Jesus does through the power of the Holy Spirit that continues on because he's not here currently, all of that really can be summed up as the good news, the gospel of Jesus. That's, when, that's the little definition that I just wanted to put on the table. Uh, it's probably should have put it up on the screen, but that's okay. We'll jump right in. One of my favorite verses Go to the book of Colossians, chapter 2. We're going to start on this little quest inside of a quest uh, in Colossians, chapter 2. Colossians 2, verse 6. This is a great example uh, in something that you can definitely, if you uh, highlight in your Bible, boy, I'd encourage anybody to highlight in their Bible. Um, There's particular words that point to the gospel, that embody the gospel. So Colossians 2, we'll start in verse 6. We'll just read just that part. As you therefore have received Christ, so starting blocks in faith, as you've received Christ, the Lord, so walk in Him. So we receive Jesus how? We receive Jesus as the good news, as the gospel. Like that's the message going out. That's the message going out. That's the message as a 19-year-old kid who just got in a a big truck wreck in Ellensburg, that's the message that I heard on the trip home from Bob Carlson, Nathan's dad, if you know Nathan Koshel. Now, he wasn't preachy. In fact, I don't even know if he used the word gospel. He wasn't that way. He simply encouraged me, son, you cannot run your own life. If you keep doing what you're doing, and what I did is, is uh, many of you guys have heard this, but uh, uh, it, was February, it was Valentine's Day 1990. The night before, my sister had a basketball game in Curlew, and so we drove to Curlew for a basketball game in the middle of a blizzard, drove home. We had to go to Linden, if you know where Linden's at, northwest corner of the state. We had cattle that we had to haul over there. We went to the basketball game. We got home about 1 in the morning. We decided not to go to sleep. We decided to go ahead, let's just load the cattle up, and let's get on the road. Uh, The weather's not going to get any better. The roads aren't going to get any better. We might as well just go. And I hadn't slept for a day or better. And so uh, by the time the sun started beating down on me and we got to Ellensburg on I-90, I fell asleep driving, my dad and I in the truck. I couldn't, and what Bob's encouragement was is you can't keep up this pace. You can't keep up this pace. What he was saying was is that you got to quit trying to be in charge of your life. He was giving me the gospel. He was giving me the good news of Jesus. He was saying, hey, hey, you, you got to receive something else in your life as a, as a control point because what you're doing is going to get you killed. So on the heels of that, actually the next Sunday in church probably, repented of those sins, repented of many more than those sins, and, and said, no, Lord, I, 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 I don't have a choice. I have got to trust you. Like what I'm doing, he's right. What I'm doing is going to kill me. 
And it wasn't just that. It wasn't just going hard, working hard, and doing good things. It was a lot of the negative stuff, too. So I received Christ in that sense that I needed the gospel, the good news. And our response to this, our response to this gospel word coming our way works out one of two ways. One, and like I'm telling you the story of me, yeah, you're right, I believe. I believe. And, and that response is a response of faith to the good news that's presented to me and has been re- presented to all of us. So yes, I believe. Or <laughs> the alternative is no, I don't believe, which is faithlessness. Faithlessness. There's a great example. I'll just read it for you. Maybe it's on the board. I'll move along quickly, though, out of Hebrews 4.2, where it says, For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard, and here's the key, did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those that heard it. It's got to be mixed with faith, the author of Hebrews says. It has to be received. It has to be lived out. It has to be, it has to be, faith has to be in that blender of what we hear. Otherwise, we're just going to disregard. And we probably all can tell stories of people that we've shared the gospel with and ended up in a squabble or an argument. And a lot of that actually boils down to how are we motivating, and it's not that it's up to us, but, but maybe they're just not there. Maybe they're just simply not there. The gospel is how we hear about Jesus, and the gospel is how we grow in Christ. Back to Colossians chapter 2. Let's read two verses together, the way that they're written. Verses 6 and 7, so as therefore as, have, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. So just the way that we received Him, just the way that we received the gospel, now we're going to walk in the gospel, just the way that we received and responded in faith to the gospel, we're called to walk in faith to the gospel. What does that look like? And here was the, why I had an affinity with this particular verse, and it was easy to memorize. Verse 7 goes on to say, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. I don't know why. I I think it's because I'm just an outdoors guy and I work in the dirt and have worked in the woods and in the fields. But this idea of rooted and built up uh, really, really strikes home with me. That's what I do. We've had some great discussion about uh, the societal mandate and calling that Adam and Eve have had, actually Josh and I in a, in a phone call, about uh, uh, those mandates are still there. And, and what we talked about was really is it comes down to what was their mandate was to steward, steward where God had put them, was to take care of what God had, had, had provided for them. Um, that's how I approach what I do on a daily basis. Uh, we got a little, little chunk of rock out here that we farm on, and uh, it's a stewardship thing. It's a stewardship thing. Like, I don't want to run it into the ground and leave nothing for the next generation. That's not stewardship. That's being greedy. The idea is to steward it in the sense that it can be a blessing for somebody else. That's what my grandparents and parents did for me. They stewarded the ground. They took care of it. They made a living off of it for sure. 
but it's better off at the end than it was even at the beginning. Colossians 2, 7 kind of sums up in this way when it comes to rooted and built up, the idea of a plant. It doesn't really matter what plant you want to think of. Maybe you want to think of a tree like our little uh, icon that we have on our stationery here at the church where you see both the roots and the fruits. You see what's going on below ground in that little icon. I don't, can we bring it up? How fast are you back there, sis? Come on, watch this girl work. Don't look back there. Watch the screen, but she's pretty quick. Uh, the roots and the fruits. What's going on below ground in the roots? Rooted, rooted. You know, they say that uh, there's as much in a plant below ground as there is above ground. I look at some of these trees, I look at the massive, you know, redwoods and sequoias, and I think, man, how is that even possible? Have you ever tried to dig up a big tree out of the ground? It takes dynamite a lot of the times. There's a lot going on that we never see under our feet because there's as much down there as there is up here, up above. That's the roots part. What do the roots do? They're, they anchor us. That's what Paul's talking about here to the Colossian believers. We have to be anchored. So we have to be stabilized. So put those words, put those concepts into that verse. As you therefore have received Christ, be anchored by Him. Be stabilized by Him. Another part of the roots part is uh, receiving water and nutrients, right? So as you've received Christ, as you've received, as we've received the gospel... Also be nourished and, and, and be watered by the gospel, right? That's what's going to help us to grow. That's what's going to help us to move on. And the key words that we can definitely underline in verse 6 is in Him. That's the key. Oh, there's our tree. Look at that. Isn't that thing cute? See the roots and the fruits? Yeah, there's not too many fruits. There's a lot of leaves, right? But see how much there's going on underground? As there is above ground, go back to the verse now. I just wave my finger and things happen. I, it's kind of like when they were all at home, and now all three of them are not home. I, if I wave my finger now at home, guess what? It's going to get broken. Right? Yep. Here it is. Look right here. So walking in him. In Christ. You're going to see that phrase, in Him, in Christ, in Jesus, in the gospel. You're going to, in the Spirit, you're going to see that littered all over the pages of the New Testament. And essentially, that is, that is encapsulating the, what the gospel message and all that the gospel means. So in Him, we're anchored, stabilized, we receive water and nutrients. And we grow branches as a believer. We grow branches in Him, right? In fact, in the Gospel of John, it says that the Lord even cuts off aspects. <laughs> he prunes. He cuts off some branches that aren't necessary, painful, but necessary pieces of our lives. Now, how has that been looking lately? Well, we've gone through a season of our fellowship being interrupted. It's been painful. It's been a challenge. It's been a real pain in the rear as a church leader 
to go through this, but what is God saying? And is it something that he's, he's pruning to make something else grow better and in the right way? Questions that we have to ask ourselves, not just church leadership, but everybody. So in him, we're growing branches, and then eventually we're putting on fruit. Paul uses this picture of a growing tree or, or a plant just as a metaphor for that Christian life. But that, of course, like I said, the key to that last, the key to it all is the idea of so walking in him. To continue to walk in the gospel that you first heard. Another way to understand this is, is to use this word, and I said that we would get to it, and that is, is that let all you do, let all you do as a Christ follower be motivated, be motivated. We're going to hang on this concept of motivation for a week or two, but let it be motivated by the gospel. The part about sharing your faith with friends around, absolutely, but let all of you do all that we do as far as our growth and, and as far as becoming stronger in our faith be motivated by the gospel. So there's multiple ways, uh, there's multiple ways to motivate and to be motivated as a Christian. Uh, there's uh, multiple ways to motivate people uh, to get them to do what you want them to do. Uh, where did he go? Yeah. Oh, boy. Never mind. I was going to pull one on Robbie. I didn't even think he'd be here because he was in a wedding yesterday. But, but when he was playing football, you guys, some of you guys know, most of you guys know that I coach football. Uh, when it gets down to really trying to get the kids what you want them to do, uh, my voice gets pretty loud, doesn't it? And I have a tendency to kind of, I'll use Judah because he's such a nice guy. And he can kind of handle it. And he's been there before. But I'll get right in the ear hole of the player and say, come on, let's go, push, push, push. I'll do whatever it takes to motivate my guys to do their job on the football field. Robbie's back to the thing. He's got a big smile on his face. Like, it was a good time to step out to cough, wasn't it? Right? And I have no problem because I coach the linemen. I, I coach the guys. We call them the hogs, right? They're down in the trench. They're down in the mud. Uh, uh, they're face-to-face, it's full combat, so to speak, with your opponent on every single play. You don't get a playoff when you're, you don't, you don't, it's not like the wide receiver, if the ball's going to the left side and I'm the wide out on the right side, you know, I can just kind of run out and make sure my guy doesn't run way over there, that's kind of easy, and you're out in open space. The guys that I coach are down in the trench, they're down in the mud, they're down where you get stepped on every single play, they're down there where you get poked in the eye, you get all these things happen to you. And my job as a coach in those moments is to get them to play above what they think they can play. To get them to play at a level beyond what they can even imagine. Because the reality is, is even physically, we can do way more physically than what we think mentally. And so I have no problem, and the guys, and, and you can, I can only get away, I can only get away with yelling at the guys that way because they know that I care for them. If they don't believe in their hearts that I actually care for them and want them to be a better football player and be a better, uh, not just a football player, but at the end of it all, be, be growing and maturing and be a productive citizen and all those sorts of things, um, they won't take the coaching. They won't take it. 
they'll either ignore it or, or they'll just endure the best they can, but they won't grow as a player because they won't push beyond the boundaries that are in their own mind. And so I have a tendency, and, and you guys don't see that side of me, and that was just like a small, wouldn't you say a pretty small example, pretty minor example uh, of, of how it goes? Um, yeah, motivation. And motivating people the right way. There's three things, there's three, there's not just three ways to motivate people, but I want to talk for, for a while a week or two maybe, about this idea of motivation. Because I think that there's a particular way that we should motivate people in regards to the gospel that is completely different, perhaps, than either how we have. I know it's completely different how that I've motivated people, even recently. And uh, so I'm being as challenged with this, perhaps, as maybe all of us will. What in the world am I talking about? Three motivators. First one, probably the most popular motivator is guilt guilt is an extremely powerful motivator if if i can make you feel guilty about what you're doing or not doing in a sense that you're willing then to change based upon how how you feel inside one way or the other if i if i can twist and turn and, and make some appeal based on guilt. Guilt's powerful. And people operate. And if we dig inside of ourselves, we'll realize that, that we both motivate out of guilt at times, maybe some more than others. Or we operate by being motivated because we feel guilty. Sometimes guilt looks this way. It looks like an appeal to the conscience, which is not necessarily bad. I, I, I'm not saying that we make people feel guilty, but there are times where we have to appeal to a, a person's conscience, their sense of right and wrong, and say, dude, do you see what you're doing? Do you understand where, where this is going, and are you willing to stop? So there is an appeal to conscience, but... But that, to be honest with you, by comparison to the last thing that we're going to talk about, it, it only will go so far. It'll only have a certain effect. Another motivator, uh, another motivator is, uh, and I have a lot of examples, and I'm picking in my mind which one I want to use. But the second motivator I want to talk about is pride. Uh, pride is an appeal to the flesh. Or to the future, it's an appeal to status uh, or or station. But pride often is a powerful motivator because we can we can pick up and say, "Hey, hey, 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 hey!" Uh, I'm thinking of a particular example, a conversation that I've had in the past few months, where where I was making appeal based upon how a person's future could be if they would stop doing what they're doing. Like you're, you, don't you see? how it could be? Don't you see the future that, that, that could be laid out in front of you? And I was appealing to that. I was appealing to that. I was appealing to that. It will have an effect, perhaps not the best effect. I think the biblical one is actually number three. 
The biblical motivator is the gospel. And that is an appeal based on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Two examples of how the gospel is the right motivator. I'm going to give you two today. We're going to talk about a few more next week. We'll see how far it goes after that. Two examples of how the gospel, by, by appealing to someone based upon the work and the, and the person of Jesus Christ, rather than just their conscience, rather than just law or, or behavior, or based upon the flesh or their future, the gospel really becomes the powerful motivator in the lives of those of us that were following Christ. All right, here we go. Two examples. First one, turn your Bibles, take a left to Ephesians chapter 5. Just a few pages. Ephesians chapter 5, right at the beginning, first verse. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. Verse number 2. Walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Two verses, first chapter, or first two verses of chapter 5 in Ephesians. Let's walk through this a little bit with the three motivators. If two brothers, two Christian people, two ladies, two guys, whatever. I'll just use the idea of two brothers are in conflict. How are we going to motivate them to deal with their stuff? How are we going to motivate these two brothers that are at odds with one another to make it right? Simply say, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, here's a cultural way. It's not going to be on the board, but here's, the, here's, here's what's very uh, prevalent in our culture is I'm sorry that you got hurt or I'm sorry that you got offended. That's a cheesy way of saying, both of those are real cheesy way of saying that the issue is all yours, it's not mine, and it's definitely not ours. I'm sorry that you were offended. Uh, we, have to, we have to wipe that out of our, out of our uh, verbiage as Christ followers. That is absolutely the worst possible way to deal with conflict, is to say, well, I'm sorry that you're offended, like there's something wrong just with you. Like the only person that needs to change, according to the gospel, is you. Two brothers were in conflict. How do we motivate them to make it right? Guilt? Appeal to their conscience? A, a, appeal to uh, their sense of, of, of feeling bad? Appeal to... To, to put the pry bar on them. It's like, you know, you know what you're doing is, is just, it's just horrible for everybody. It's just horrible for everybody. It's affecting the families. It's affecting the church. Come on, man, get it right. How come you guys can't get along? And just really ride them and ride them and ride them and make them feel guilty? Or would we appeal out of pride? Say, hey, 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 don't you guys see how, if you guys got your stuff together, how this could be just this wonderful example, and it could be a good example for other believers. But what's the motivation point? Is, is pumping them up with pride? Like that that's what's going to overcome this controversy? Or shall I read on? Therefore, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. 
dear children, and walk in love. Here's the key. As Christ also has loved us and given himself for us in offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. The Bible is clear that the gospel of Jesus is the new standard for motivation. The Bible is very clear on that. So when you see these, as Christ, in Christ, in Him, in the Spirit, that is that gospel motivation piece that we see here in this. Look at that standard play out. Therefore, be imitators of God. That's an action point. Walk in love, verse 2 says. That's an action point. As Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. That's the motivation piece that both parties have have to grab onto to resolve their issues. Because both parties have to embrace this idea that they have to walk as Christ walked, that they have to to imitate who God is. Is God a God of division? Is Christ a, is he the savior of of conflict? Or is he a, does he promote conflict? Absolutely not. He's a God of peace. He's the Savior of peace. So as Christ has also loved, loved us and given himself for us, it's sacrificial. It's sacrificial. There's another example in the same chapter that we want to look at, so we don't have to go too far. I'll set it up with the hypothetical that perhaps you've been giving advice to a friend who... Uh, let's say, is in the situation, and I'll talk from the guy's perspective, uh, is not being very nice, quote-unquote, to his wife. Not being real friendly, not being the husband that God has called him to be to his wife. How would we motivate him to do the right thing? Would you talk about his sense of duty as a husband? His obligations as a husband? Would we work him over for the things that he's not doing to make him feel guilty about being a rotten husband? Would we talk about the things that could be? Would we appeal and pump up his sense of pride as a man? His standing in the community? Flip forward uh, 20 verses and look at verse 25, the same chapter of Ephesians. Where it says, husbands, love your wives. That's the command. That's the action piece. That's what singles us out. Husbands, love your wives. Here's the motivator. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That's the right motivator. That's the message of the gospel for marriages, particularly for men. Like that's the good news for men. We're called to love our wives. We're not called, we're commanded by the word to love our wives. To love our wives. To love our wives. God's not redundant. Guys struggle to love in case you don't uh, already know that. For ladies, it's very natural. You watch, uh, you, you watch a, a mom out here in a busy parking lot and uh, she's got them kids and she's doing... And she's gathering help, and she's watching. She's pushing the cart. She's not looking at the cart. She's looking at the kids. You know, she wants them to be safe. That's part of her nurturing nature is, to, is, a, is a, that she would she love and adore those that are around her. 
The Bible doesn't command her to love, although it's a very understanding that God wants us to all love one another and to love our spouses. But for a lady, love comes naturally. For a guy, respect is what comes natural. We're commanded to do the things that we're not hardwired to do according to God. God hardwires ladies to be nurturing, and he hardwires guys to be into respect, honor, that sort of thing. So the commands actually come on the opposite side. Ladies are to submit, according to verse 22. Husbands are commanded to love. Love is that action that follows the motivation and the picture and the work of Christ in relationship with his church. You get to the end of the chapter, we see that Paul's actually talking about Christ in the church more so than he's talking about marriages. And oftentimes if we read it and think about it in reverse, uh, we get it wrong where our pattern is Christ in the church, not Christ in the church is supposed to look like marriage. Uh, that would be a fatal mistake in our culture. Fatal mistake. No, our marriages are supposed to emulate, they're supposed to emulate Jesus' relationship with all believers of all times and what he's done for all believers of all times. The good news of what Jesus has done for all believers of all times. Men are commanded to love and they're commanded to, to and, and we're, uh, it's imperative that we get the motivation piece correctly. I spent a lot of time, and I know I wasn't the only one spending a lot of time, and I'm going to step out on a little bit of a, a limb here, uh, encouraging a brother that uh, has ran off the rails I spent a lot of time trying to encourage him and to appeal, and I know I wasn't the only one trying to appeal to every potential avenue that we could appeal to to get him to come to his senses. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, it wasn't all of these various methods that was the right message. And I wasn't the only one given the right message. It was a real group effort, we'll say. It was the gospel. It was the gospel that ended up being the appropriate and still is the appropriate motivator. But like Hebrews 4 says, not everybody's going to take it with faith. Not everybody's going to stop in their tracks and be motivated by the gospel and receive that word in faith. That doesn't mean that that's the end of the line. That doesn't mean that that's, that's all that, you know, well, I said what I needed to say, and, and that's all there is to it. Our response in those situations, as Christ followers, is to con continue to pray, continue to reach out when and where we can, continue to love when and where we can. But ultimately, ultimately, 
People have kind of come to a, a, a decision-making point that are they going to follow the gospel more than just a message of salvation? Are they going to follow the gospel uh, according to all that God has created that to be? All that God intends for the gospel, the good news of Jesus, are they going to overarch that with their lives? Or are they going to wash it away and say, I'm done with that, I'm going to do something else? Um, there's a decision-making point for everybody. And it's true for all of us. It's true for all of us. None of us here are, uh, you know, uh, we're, we all put our genes on the same, you know, one leg at a time. We all can be tempted and uh, 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 affected by the enemy, in a sense, uh, the same way. The enemy doesn't want us coming together, doesn't want us following the Lord, does, definitely does not want us to be motivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ because he is the good news. The enemy wants us to believe anything but the good news. And I'm sure that it just cooks the enemy to know that Jesus came to change everything. That he came to change everything for those that would believe in him. So to use a phrase that's really wore out over the last four months, the new norm of the New Testament, the new norm that Jesus brought into the scene is to be motivated by his good news, to be motivated by his gospel, to be motivated by all that of who he is and what he does in our lives. See, the gospel is intended to infect every area of our lives. We have a tendency, I'll say, speak for myself, I have a tendency to be very selective at times what area I want the gospel to infect. Eh, eh, eh. No, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. And we live this kind of back and forth, compartmentalized life when we pick and choose where we think the gospel and where Jesus can work and where he can't work. No, that's not how it works. He's meant to come in and take over, to change everything, to change everything in you, to change everything in me, to change our families, to change our marriages. That's the infection piece that he brings with the good news. The gospel is intended to infect every area of our lives, and the effect of that gospel, infection, changing life is a changed life that's the effect that's a changed life that's what i'm talking about i'm not the same person i was when i was 19 like you guys wouldn't want me up here if, when i was 19 i'll guarantee you that if i was still that guy i talked about it last week you take these little dudes oh they're all gone again but you take these little tiny guys and like if 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 who'd i use uh mert and arthur if they were the same size they are now at two and three how old's merton Ah, take a guess. I don't know how. How old's Merton? Oh, nobody knows. Mom and Dad aren't here. Grandma's not here. He's four. All right. Let's just let's just hypothetically say that Mert's four, because we think we're pretty close. But 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 if Mert was the size at twenty-five that he is at four, there'd be a problem. There'd be no change. There'd be no growth. There'd be no. You know, it, it would be a disaster. It'd be horrible, on a physical sense. Right? 
that same truth is true for our spiritual walk as well. So the effect that Jesus is bringing through the gospel is the changed life, is the growth, is the stretching, is the pulling, is the, the extraction of, of sinful behavior, sinful thought life, sinful patterns of life, bad theology, all of these types of things. Jesus is saying, this has got to go, and then this is what comes in, right? These are the things that have to leave if you're going to follow me, right? Because you can't do both. You can't be bipolar, spiritually speaking. You can't believe in Jesus and still be, you know, into idolatry. That doesn't work. So Jesus says, well, that part's got to go. That was a whole message from two weeks ago. That Jesus is into pulling the idols out of our lives and replacing them with himself. That's the continuing work. That's the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Bringing conviction where there needs to be conviction. Bringing encouragement where there needs to be encouragement. Bringing assurance that you're on the right path when you're on the right path. Right? All of that is wrapped up in the gospel message. So the effect that the gospel has is the changed life. It's growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ, becoming more and more like Him every day. Not in a selfish sense, because part of becoming more and more like Him is the idea of sharing that good gift, that good word, that gospel word with those that are around us. That's part of the natural outflow of becoming more and more like Christ. We can't hide it away. You can't conceal it away, right? The Christian life is not meant to be lived in isolation and, and, and uh, seclusion as much as many people who think that they can pull that off would like to. The reality is, is that they're missing the greatest part. And they may have a head full of knowledge in that sense of who God is, but they have no arena to live it out. And this is the arena that we're called to live it out. And out there is the arena that we're called to live out what Jesus is doing in our lives and how the gospel is changing our lives. And it changed it in a situation. It changed it at the moment. But it continues to change it day by day, moment by moment, as we choose to follow him. And as we're motivated rightly to follow him. Because the gospel is the right motivator. It's the right motivator. It's the biblical motivator for Christian growth. You won't guilt anybody to grow in Christ. You may guilt them, but eventually that pathway of encouragement is going to trail off. You're not going to appeal to a person's sense of pride to grow in Christ. And, and, and uh, it will not have a lasting effect that's intended. But if we're motivating people by the gospel, if we're, so to speak, as the relationship can handle it, if we're in their ear hole, a little football term, with the gospel, encouraging in that way, if we have that type of relationship where we can back and forth and, and, and hammer out some things and deal with conflict and, 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 and grow our marriages and grow our families, all of that according to what the gospel says, 
according to the in Christ, then we know we're hooked on the right motivator. Then we're hooked on the motivator that, that's eternal in that regard. We have to be working with that. We have to be working with that right motivator. And I'll tell you, this is as much for me as I've studied through this thing, as I've uh, kind of buried myself in the, in, the, in the couch and studying through this thing. This is probably as much for me as anybody. Uh, partly because, and I think that we all kind of have a tendency to, to um, we all have a tendency in this regard is that we're goal-oriented. I want to see results. Like, I don't go out and do what I do Monday through Friday just to have a good time. I can think of uh, less painful ways uh, to have a good time than to wear myself out farming Monday through Saturday, right? Uh, so it's, 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 not, it's not that. Uh, I forgot where I was even going with that. We have to have the, I'll just end with what my notes say. We have to have the right motivator. And the gospel's that right uh, a motivator that has long-lasting effects. And that's what, that's what motivates us uh, uh, in the long run to grow and to grow spiritually. So I have the worship team come back on up and we'll close with the song. I encourage you to come back next week. We're going to kind of stay in kind of some of the same theme of motivation and, and we're going to look at a variety over the next week or two of, of different topics where we can see gospel, the gospel as the motivator for change, the gospel for motivating uh, people to continue to grow in Christ. And so I just encourage you to, uh, to uh, hang on. Is next week? When's the church camp out? In two weeks. So you hear about it next week but not the following. I keep saying we're going to talk about this for two weeks, but two weeks while we're here, week after next, we'll be at the church camp out. And we encourage you to uh, come on up and have a great time. There's, uh, there's swimming. There's all kinds of activities, a good time around the campfire. It's just a great place to relax and to unwind. And uh, so really embrace that idea. If you have any questions about the church camp out, see me, see Dennis, would you raise your hand real quick? See Dennis Allwine or, or uh, Dave, he's in the back. Um, Tim Weeby, raise your hand real quick. Uh, he's another one of the elders. You can see some of these guys if you have any questions about the church camp out, where it's at, and, and how all that goes. Uh, but I would encourage you now to just uh, rise with us as we worship the Lord, uh, to continue to walk in His grace and His mercy as He motivates us to follow Him.